to Hillcrest Church Audio. We hope today's message will help you grow. Hey, good morning. I'm just so grateful. Uh, I love the season of small group testimonies. It's really wonderful to see how deeply small groups impact our community. Um, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Christian Lindbeck. I get to lead the really outstanding team of pastors and staff here at Hillcrest Church. I want to welcome you, so I want to welcome uh, those who are joining us online. I want to welcome all of you who are joining us in uh, the sanctuary this morning. It's good to be together with you. Uh, this morning, we're excited to start a new series called I Am. Uh, in this series, we're going to unpack the eight I Am statements that Jesus makes about himself in the Gospel of John. Um, seven of those statements are these culturally, theologically loaded word pictures, but the the eighth one, where we're actually going to start tonight, uh, is more like a theological bombshell uh, that explodes Jesus' identity as the I Am. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 8 tonight. If you want to begin making your way there, uh, if you're joining us online, there is a Bible section and you can find John chapter 8 there. All the scriptures that I use today will also be in the notes section down there, and I put them in the order that I use them. We'll be in John uh, chapter 8, broadly in verses 54 through 59, but the real zinger today uh, happens in John 8, 58. Um, each one of these eight statements that we're going to explore over these two months is essentially its own theological treatise on the identity and personhood of Jesus that we are going to attempt to squeeze into 25-minute summaries. So let me just say, what we're doing is beginning an exploration of Jesus as the I Am. This is an invitation to explore more. So if you have questions about who Jesus is, in, in particular, I'd like to say who, who Jesus says he is. Who does Jesus purport to be? And you've ever wanted to unpack that, well then uh, the things that Jesus says in these weeks are provocative. And it certainly will answer the question, who does Jesus think he is? He is unequivocal about this. As has been famously said, either Jesus is who he says he is, God in the flesh, or he's a lunatic. And it will be unpacked in these eight weeks of who Jesus is. I'm what I love about each one of these statements, too, other than it's just it's dense theological content, is that um, each one of them pulls on these deeply rooted ideas. So it's not like Jesus is just pulling flowery language out of the air. I'm, you know, I'm like a butterfly or something, right? Uh, Jesus is, in fact, pulling, reaching back into their collective faith, memory, and experiences, and pulling on centuries of interconnected themes and ideas. So that when he taps these images, they're not just descriptive. I don't know how to think of them other than explosive, like explosive spiritual ordinance. These ideas have been cooking for millennia, uh, waiting for Jesus to come along. He is the long-awaited answer to these 
images, these ideas, the person, the life, the words, the death, the resurrection of Jesus finally and fully reveal the truth about God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and the restored kingdom of God. Scripture itself delights in this paradoxical, wonderful truth. That to see the temporal person, Jesus, is to see the eternal God, the Father. To understand the Son, the Spirit, and the Kingdom. The second person of the Godhead is both before and within time as the person of Jesus. Colossians 1.15, famously called the Colossian hymn, says this way about Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Look at this parallel. Firstborn of all creation. For in Him, we'll go back, for in Him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created uh, through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Just, this is so powerful. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything, he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased, listen, to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He is the word that created while also being the firstborn in the new creation. He is both without the barriers of time and born within time. He is God and born man, Jesus And if this sounds um, both puzzling and marvelous, then you're starting to grasp Jesus as the I am. What I want to do is start making our way at least towards John 8, 58, moving in that direction. Now, to really understand the importance of the passage that we're studying today in John 8, uh, we have to do a little historical language context. Now, I know that Saying setting historical language context is not an exciting sentence, uh, but you'll have to trust me that the payoff on the historical language context is worth it. In fact, those who already know where I'm going this are probably already chomping at the bit to call out the good answers about Jesus as the I am. So when God introduces himself, and I want to be careful with that since uh, we're going to use that language, but this is a being without gender. So, but when God introduces himself in Scripture, he typically uses uh, a very culturally understood Elohim, which just basically means God. But as Elohim God increasingly uh, unpacks who he is and how he stands from all the other claimed Elohim gods, he eventually gives himself a personal and unique name, Yahweh. And though it is used before the incident I'm about to read to you, 
Exodus chapter 3, 13 through 15, describes the time he gives this personal name to Moses and even sets some of the context for understanding what this name will mean. So in context, let's go to Exodus chapter 3. Uh, We'll begin there in verse 13. Uh, The occasion here is this famous calling of Moses at the burning bush. In this scene, Elohim God has explained to Moses that he, Moses, must return to Egypt and participate with God in setting the Israelites free. And in response, uh, Moses is raising some serious questions about this seemingly impossible task. And one of those questions is, who are you? Who should I say sent me? Uh, Now, we could do a whole other series on the power of names and knowing the personal name. But Moses wants to know, who is this God that is sending me? What if I should say it's just the God of your fathers? And God is going to begin to answer that question to him. So Moses says to God, suppose I say, uh, who, who is it that has sent me? What shall I tell them? God answers in verse 14. God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am who has I am is the one who has sent you. Now, I wish you could see this in Hebrew. I wish you could see this verb for to be uh, and another verb for to be sandwiching the word who. In fact, it's really translated well for us literally as I am, the the verb of existing, I am who I am. Uh, And so the statement of the existence of God. But what happens in verse 15 is he combines these ideas together. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, it is the Lord, and I want to underscore that, the Elohim God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the gods of Jacob that has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Uh, What happens here is it takes those verbs to be and that uh, pronoun who and creates a whole new word, Yahweh. I want you to look, if we go back to that scripture, it's going to say Lord. Now, in your most uh, translations, when you see that all capital Lord, that is them um, translating the word Yahweh. So what it says here is Yahweh, his name, he gives his name. Tell him Yahweh, the Elohim God. Remember the just sort of general name for God? Yahweh, the Elohim God of your fathers, is what you should call me. And it takes all the forms of the verb I am and smashes them together in a statement that means something like I was, I am, I am currently existing, and I will exist. It's the most profound statement of existing. I am. Revelations 1.18 says it this way. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. Now take this back to Colossians where we were just at. Says the Lord God who is and was and is to come. This is his, that's describing his personal name, Yahweh. Set apart from all the other names of God and all the other Elohim, so-called Elohim gods, is Yahweh. We actually have an English word to describe this kind of existing. That word is aseity. It comes from a Latin word, aseitas. It literally means a se, from oneself. 
uh, and it means to exist on your own. I think Webster's calls it the quality or state of being self-derived or self-originated. No maker, no start, no end, just is I am. Can you imagine a more perfect name for God, a more extraordinary name? Me neither. Its implicit power has been so strong that some will not even pronounce the divine name called the Tetragrammaton. The four letters of this name. In fact, it's why we're familiar with the title Jehovah. Because if you take the consonants of Yahweh and add the more benign vowels from the word Adonai, Lord like a king, you create a new word Jehovah. So technically you're not saying Yahweh, right? They held to the sacred power of this known personal name. Consequently, when Greek becomes the spoken language of people and the writing language, the writers who needed to solve, bring the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, needed to solve this verbal conundrum. So what they did is they took uh, the Greek word for to be, and they took to be, or I am, uh, the, the statement I am, and they just added in another pronoun, I, I am. Uh, you see, like in many modern languages, like in Spanish, in the verb to be, the pronoun's already included. So the root word, a me, is already going to mean I am. But there's this, this extra I on there. So it's the effect of saying I, I am, I am. So they're capturing that Yahweh idea. So, armed with that term information, let's finally make it to John chapter 8. In context, John, uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem during this huge party feast called Tabernacles. Uh, he's been teaching some. He sticks around when the party is over. He makes a big scene on the last day. And he sticks around and he's teaching in the temple courts. And it says, uh, blowing the people away. John chapter 7, verse 15 says, astonishing people with his teaching. They would say, how is it? Where did he get this understanding without being taught? And into that charged space of teaching and people asking that question, where did this come from? Jesus begins to press his real case for his identity. Who is he? And he begins to say, I can speak this way about God and myself because of who my father is. This raises a sensible question for them. Who's your father? And then a more piercing question after that is, who do you think you are? Uh, That's the NIV version. I like the ESV version that says something like, who do you make yourself out to be? Who are you saying you are? And that's what's going to happen in this series. Jesus is going to fundamentally answer that question today and in the weeks to come. So, remembering the vaulted place of Abraham and Moses as the recipients of the name and the law, uh, their centrality in the faith of the Jews, I want to read their question to Jesus uh, beginning in verse 53 and then their answer. So, uh, beginning in verse 53, again it says, Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And there's some context about uh, what has been seen and not seen. And the prophets who died, who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? 
Jesus replies in verses 54 through 56. Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, who you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it, and he was glad. Now, other scriptures help us understand that what Abraham saw is God's promise to rescue all people through a Messiah hero, which he saw in his own son in Genesis 22, and how God would provide the answer. To this answer, they reply quite pointedly in verse 57. What? You're not even 50 years old yet. And you have seen Abraham? Now here's where Jesus triggers the bombshell that has been cooking for thousands of years. And I want to read verse 58 slowly. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. In the Greek, this I am is ego ami, I, I am, which is the Greek equivalent of Yahweh, which is the unmistakable handle of the everlasting God. The I am. I just think there's no no more powerful or provocative thing that Jesus could have done than to place him in a, himself in a temporal reference point before Abraham, with Abraham, and now long after Abraham. What do we call that? The God who was and is and is to come. This is his personhood, his relationship with the Father and his identity. Having understood enough of what Jesus just claimed about himself, maybe not, surely not understanding at all. Having understood enough in verse 59, those Jews gathered around and reply, at this, they picked up stones to stone him. Having understood Jesus just claimed for himself the relationship, personal name of the everlasting God. I think these words from Jesus' mouth should still blow our minds. You see, we haven't been steeped in the power of the words, I am. Let me take you back to the throne room as envisioned by Isaiah in chapter 41. He's seeing God's final comfort and rescue. He sees the throne room, and I want to zero in on 41b, the second part of it. Who has performed and done this rescue Calling the generations from the beginning of the world. Who is it? It's I, Yahweh, the first and the last. I am He. So all of a sudden, who, Jesus, who are you? I am Yahweh, the one who's been calling out the generations from the beginning. Though I exist in time, I am the one 
who has been, who is, and who will be. And this statement from Jesus just launches his identity into the cosmos. It opens the door to a million theological books. It inspires and ought to inspire songs of wonder. Psalm 96.4, speaking of Yahweh, the one I am says, your greatness is beyond description. It's beyond what we can even, we must hold some of this mystery in our mind. There was a song from last decade called, I Stand in Awe of You. Anybody remember that song? You are beautiful beyond description. Too marvelous for words. Too wonderful for comprehension. Like nothing ever seen or heard. This claimed identity for Jesus as the I am brings all of the shared attributes of the living God into visible focus in the embodied person of Jesus. Maker, author, savior, finisher, returning king, older brother, lord, triumphant leader, bread of life, living water, ruler of all, lamb slain before time, teacher, shepherd, the fingertips present at creation, the word spoken and the word embodied. The preacher, S.M. Lockridge, both famously and enthusiastically said of Jesus, I just wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He is the centerpiece of civilization. He stands in the solitude of himself. I am He's awesome. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He is the highest personality in philosophy. He is the supreme problem in higher criticism. He is the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He is the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. He is the middle of the age. He is the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He is the only one qualified to be the all-sufficient Savior. He is the I am. Seven more weeks, seven more descriptions, seven more wonderfully rich theological images, seven more opportunities to learn and to worship and to bow down in adoration. But if we took seven more centuries, it wouldn't be enough. In this series, we'll only scratch the surface, but every scratch will be worth a million millions. Who do you say you are? I am. I am. I don't think that I can end this message without an invitation to more. I beg you, go research these ideas. Study the word Yahweh. Keep coming to these gatherings and listening to these messages. Join a small group and talk about it. 
Jesus is unlike any other so-called spiritual leader in the world. He is not just a great teacher or an enlightened soul. He is by his own confession and proof the full representation of the invisible God. Which means, friends, you really can know the one who created you. The one who loves you. The one who is looking for you right now. Scripture contains this very important idea that as a human being, you can decide. Check out Isaiah 47 for this. You can decide, I myself am, as the fundamental reality. I am my own authority. Or, God is. And the I am is the rightful Lord of my life and creation. The most important human decision we ever make. We just want you to know that we are here to wrestle and to talk and to think about it and debate about it and to email about it. We hope that this series will invite that kind of wrestling. We're here to pray with you. If you want to put it on your community card, I want to talk about this. Any one of us would be just delighted to spend some time with you thinking about it more. If you've decided today that you know enough to believe in him, to entrust your life to him, I just want you to tell somebody. I think Tim said a week ago, just tell somebody about that. Would you tell somebody about that? And if you want to write it on the community card, like I said, we'd love to follow up with you. The I am changes everything forever. Would you join me in a prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you. I'm just stunned to speak a message like this. To, to speak of who you are is both kind of a wonderful and terrifying thing. Lord, we confess that we don't even know a small percentage of what we're saying. You are too wonderful for words, beautiful beyond our comprehension. So today I just ask that you would, you love humanity. You're, you're coming after humanity. Your whole story is you delight in making humans and you haven't changed your mind about it. You keep making them and you pursue each and every one of them like a delighted in creation. Lord, would you open eyes and hearts and minds today to love you and to worship you and to find the full and joyous life now and the hope eternal and come that comes with recognizing you as the I am. We pray it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for connecting with Hillcrest Church. For more info on this and other sermons, visit us online at hcbellingham.com or join us at 9 or 11 a.m. any Sunday morning, 1400 Larrabee Ave, Bellingham, Washington.